This season of Don't Shoot the Messenger is brought to you by 91. 91 is an authorized financial service provider. Up until March 2015, a statue of the British mining tycoon and imperialist Cecil John Rhodes had sat in a prominent position on the University of Cape Town campus since its unveiling in the 1930s. That's not to say that the statue was well-loved or devoid of controversy before 2015. In fact, the first calls for its removal had been made by Africana students in the 1950s. But it was on 9th March 2015 that the now-famous assault on the statue would take place when former student Chumani Makwele hurled a bucket of human shit at Rhodes's face. What happened next was something that had never really happened before so visibly and on such a national scale. That was a reckoning with South Africa's history, not just its years of apartheid, but the decades of colonial rule too. And that reckoning is still nowhere near complete. Welcome to Don't Shoot the Messenger, the Daily Maverick podcast where we bring you the stories behind the stories. In our third season, we're looking at solutions to South Africa's problems. And in this episode, the challenge we're tackling is more abstract than some of the issues we've been confronting this season, but is no less vital. We're asking, what is the best way for South Africa to grapple with the past? To help us figure it out, we're talking to a professor who has made it his business to see Cecil John Rhodes account for his deeds in fictional form, and to a museum curator whose job it is to collect Germany's most toxic monuments. I'm your host, Rebecca Davis. South Africans, collectively, we're really bad at history. It's often been commented that the country has a kind of collective amnesia about loads of stuff, ranging from fairly recent corruption scandals to apartheid atrocities. The Human Sciences Research Council recently surveyed thousands of South Africans to find out how familiar they were with key historical events, and the results were pretty shocking. Almost 40% of respondents said they had never heard of the 1960 Sharpeville massacre. Only 19% said they knew enough to be able to tell a friend about it. And one of the consequences of this widespread historical ignorance is that it has meant that statues of highly questionable historical figures have been able to effectively hide in public view for decades, simply becoming part of the scenery. Or at least that's what many people assumed, until the hurling of shit at the statue of Cecil John Rhodes on the UCT campus provided a reminder that such monuments can also be an active source of pain and anger. The question that the Rhodes Must Fall movement posed not just in South Africa, but eventually all over the world, was what are we supposed to do with these statues? And in researching this topic, we came across somebody whose job it is to answer that question. My name is Ute Ewert and I am running the museum in uh, Spandau, Berlin. Ute Ewert is a German historian and she's also the curator of one of the most extraordinary permanent collections at a museum anywhere in the world. At the Citadel Museum in Berlin, Ute collects toxic monuments, 
the legacy of a national history all too well known for being saturated with racism, anti-Semitism and hatred. The most famous exhibit in the collection is an eight-ton granite head of Vladimir Lenin. If you've seen the brilliant 2003 film Goodbye Lenin about the fall of the Berlin Wall, you'll know the one I'm talking about. But there are also relics from the era of Prussian imperialism, from the Weimar Republic, and of course, from the Nazis. Interestingly, there aren't as many Nazi monuments in existence as you might think. There were not so many Nazi statues, first of all, because the Nazis presented themselves more through architecture than through monuments. And some of those monuments they had done in public space were made from metal. And the Nazis themselves destroyed it and melted the metal down to get more metal for weapons. When it came to those monuments to Nazism that did exist, though, the Germans post-World War II had an even more denialist approach to the recent past than white South Africans with apartheid. The Germans simply buried a lot of statues. Some of them were buried in the ground to hide them. <laughs> when the Allies, especially the Red Army, uh, came to Berlin and surrounded Berlin, the Germans often decided to be no Nazis anymore and uh, to hide that they ever were. And so they hid the monuments as well. And uh, sometimes you can still find monuments or little statues, for example, from Adolf Hitler in the ground. Urte says that every now and then, more than 70 years after the fall of the Nazis, she still gets calls from ordinary Germans who have made bizarre discoveries beneath the soil of their gardens or backyards. The family from Berlin-Zehlendorf called me and said, we found uh, the head of Hitler in bronze in our garden and what shall we do with it because we don't want to just throw it in the garbage because we are afraid that anyone could find it you know we have a growing of the right wing uh, in our country and they were afraid that those neo-nazis would get it and maybe it, it comes into the wrong hands and so i said well yes um of course i will come and i will take it and this thing, this head of Adolf Hitler was so toxic to them that they were really urgent uh, to me to come because they didn't want it uh, inside their house with their family and so on. And I was like, um, yeah, okay, I'm a historian. It's not that uh, bad for me. And then I came there <laughs> and uh, I will take it. But the moment I had it in my hands, I could feel the toxic monument and I, I could feel what it is like to see that face in my hand and to see that this man was uh, worshipped so much and what it means and although I'm a historian and I thought I would be <laughs> I would be prepared I was not That thing Urte said about how the family that found Hitler's head was really worried about it falling into the wrong hands, that's not an idle concern for her. Given that, as she said, Germany has been seeing the rise of the right wing over the past several years, 
It was a major worry when they were establishing the exhibition of toxic monuments that the main people it could attract might be neo-Nazis coming to take selfies with the exhibits. And that's why Urte says she will go and collect any offensive artifact that comes to light. But that doesn't mean she will exhibit them all without careful thought and consultation. I accept anything, but I wouldn't show everything. I... Uh, would always like to discuss it with a group of people, whether to show it or not. And I think my duty is to take those things for research and maybe sometimes for an exhibition to show what happened and to explain it with an object. Maybe sometimes those monuments need their own time to be not that hurtful and so toxic anymore. But when it comes to the monuments that are on display, visitors are welcome to touch them, to sit on them, to engage with them however they feel moved to do so. Our concept is to get involved with people uh, who can't see, but also to touch history and to break those monuments that were meant to show power down to eye level. And we have the German word begreifen, that means reaching for or touch things, but also means uh, to get to understand things. And we often find not just kids, but also adults that like to touch those monuments and perhaps to feel the times. For example, you can see at the statues uh, have wounds, uh, <laughs> so to say, because uh, they are statues of, uh, of people that were destroyed during the Second World War by bombs, and, uh, or the nose broke, or uh, the fingers especially broke, and they like to touch it. And I, I think sometimes maybe they get an idea of what time and what history means. Some of us don't need this kind of museum encounter, of course, because for some of us, history is still very much with us in the present. When we're back, an African academic explains how he achieved his own audacious form of revenge against one of the most controversial imperial figures from Africa's past. Change is everywhere. Sometimes it's good, sometimes confusing or so extraordinary that it challenges everyone and everything. But whatever change comes next, 91 will strive to do everything possible to make a positive change for your investments and for the world we live in. 91, investing for a world of change. This season of Don't Shoot the Messenger is brought to you by 91. 91 is an authorized financial service provider. Professor Adiki Adebayo is the director of the Institute for Pan-African Thought and Conversation at the University of Johannesburg. And since he was a young man, his life has been directly shaped by Cecil John Rhodes and the prestigious scholarship to Oxford set up with his money. I was a Rhodes Scholar 30 years ago and I'd promised myself that having benefited from the Rhodes Scholarship and felt somewhat uncomfortable like I think many Rhodes Scholars, had taken money that was ill-gotten based on plunder and pillage, 
you can at least pursue anti-imperial causes. So I tried to do that. And my idea was to bite the hand that fed me. Professor Adebayo has now bitten the hand that fed him rather more directly with the publication of a novella called The Trial of Cecil John Rhodes. It's an ingenious book which imagines the imperialist entering the African hereafter and being placed on trial by a cast of African luminaries from politics, law and literature for the crimes committed by Rhodes against Africa and Africans. The crimes listed by the book are very real. This is fiction firmly rooted in fact. And Professor Adebayo explains that one of the reasons why he wanted to write the book in a fictional format was because it's clear that the traditional ways of teaching history have failed to effectively elucidate the message of who Cecil John Rhodes was and what he did. Part of writing this book is that it's not that the information on Cecil Rhodes is not available. It is available. And you've had, you know, I think nearly 30 biographies written on Cecil Rhodes, many of them by non-professional historians. You know, I think there were only about four historians in that first group. And many of them, especially the early ones, glorifying Cecil Rhodes. But even the more contemporary biographies by people like Paul Malam, who wrote a wonderful book on the cult of Cecil Rhodes, isn't always widely read. It tends to be read by academics who are citing and quoting each other. So what I thought could be interesting and to get people to read is if you fictionalize it and make it into a story that is interesting, but the historical facts are still there and they're all true, but people are hopefully excited to read it, then it's a more digestible way of getting history across, of popularizing history. And that's what I've tried to do. It's always been my sense that very few South Africans, myself included, have a particularly clear idea of the details of Rhodes' activities in Southern Africa. And partly that's a matter of historical ignorance, but there's another more troubling issue potentially at play too. Sometimes I have a feeling that black suffering is, you know, kind of seen as less important historically than other suffering. You know, any suffering needs to be properly contextualized and taken seriously. So the fact that six million Jews were killed by Hitler during the European Holocaust is something that everybody has to condemn. And the reparations is something that I think can be supported easily, both ethically and in practical terms. But somehow with black suffering, uh, you know, you had four and a half centuries of slavery and a century of colonialism. But when you talk about reparations for black suffering, you don't see the same kind of reaction. And you certainly haven't had that much reparation. To Professor Adebayo, Rhodes should rightly be viewed in the same light as history's most egregious villains, like Adolf Hitler. He finds the creation of the Mandela Rhodes Foundation in 2003 particularly outrageous, because to him, bringing the names of Mandela and Rhodes together in perpetuity is akin to yoking Hitler's name 
to that of a Zionist hero, which, he says, would never happen. My view is basically that the sort of destruction that Cecil Rhodes wrought in Southern Africa on Zimbabwe and on Zambia, which was Northern Rhodesia, and we have to remember that his British South Africa company also had access to all of the mineral rights in both countries and ruled over both countries. And he also held sway in Malawi, Botswana, in Lesotho, which he helped to declare British protectorate, and was prime minister of the Cape Colony between 1890 and 1895. And during this period, he introduced a lot of the policies that apartheid later came to refine. You know, he forced blacks into the labor market through hot and labor taxes and through creating reserves, native reserves. There was social segregation in public amenities that happened as a result of Rhodes' prime ministership. There was flogging of black workers. And he created in his own minds an 11,000 barracks, which was basically dog patrolled and slave labor happened in those places. So I think when you see a figure like Rhodes, and as I said, an estimated 60,000 people were killed in Rhodesia, and I've described some of those atrocities, including stealing herds of cattle, stealing the best land in those countries. That kind of figure for many Africans would have committed similar atrocities to what Hitler committed in Europe at that time. But yet, we don't seem to view Rhodes in that light. It probably goes without saying that Professor Adebayo supports the Rhodes Must Fall movement, but he doesn't necessarily believe that statues should be removed and hidden from view. I think that, you know, just as we discussed with Cecil Rhodes at the University of Cape Town, one shouldn't erase history. I think statues should be put in museums and contextualised. So I don't believe that all of these statues should just be removed and locked up somewhere where people don't see them, because these statues can also be a way of teaching people lessons and learning lessons from the past. But if these statues are also a sort of violent reminder to the descendants of their victims, for example, in America, Many of these statues are civil war generals or slave masters or slave supporters. If that is a daily assault on their descendants, then I don't think they should be in public spaces being celebrated. They can be in museums where they're contextualized. And one of the things I've argued recently, I visited Cecil Rhodes' hometown, Bishop Stortford, in 2009. And they have a museum there in his name. And recently, in August 2020, they changed the name of the museum and removed his name completely from the arts complex, etc. I would have named that the Cecil Rhodes Museum to Imperialism and basically showed his atrocities and showed the atrocities of imperialism as well, of which he's the greatest individual symbol. So 
it must be a nuanced debate, but I think it's important to take into account the fact that if there are minorities in your society who feel assaulted by celebrating brutal imperialist or colonialist or slave masters, then you must be sensitive to that and remove that from public glare. But don't get rid of it because it can be a way of learning lessons from history. When I was talking to Urte Ivert, the curator of the Exhibition of Toxic Monuments in Berlin, I asked her if she had any advice for South Africa, a country with problematic statues aplenty and a violent history which lives on in the daily experiences of too many. I think it's very important to discuss every single monument because there is not just one way to deal with it. You have to be open to deal with it in different ways. I can understand not every statue should be shown in a museum. I, I can understand that uh, people don't like to have an extra museum for uh, people uh, who oppress them. And I think sometimes it's good to have them in a museum and to show them and to show at an object what happened to your history and what happened to the people during the last times. And still they are just symbols. In my opinion, I think when I destroy a racist monument, I don't change anything about the racist structures at first. It's quite understandable to let out anger on a stone or a piece of metal, but still you have to change other things than those objects. So I don't like destroying, but I understand it <laughs> in, in special cases. And uh, I really love the idea that there are other new monuments that show the empowerment of people who fought against oppression and who were in the end stronger than those uh, racist colonialists. So sometimes maybe it is possible to, to have two monuments, the old one and the new one directly opposite or uh, directly beneath it and shows now we overwhelmed the hard history and we are better now and it's not necessary to, to forget the old history. I must say, I kind of love that idea. For every statue of an old colonial dude or an apartheid administrator, Build another of someone who has spent their lifetime fighting for the opposite ideals. Of course, many would say at a time like this, we can't afford to spend money on any statues at all. To which one response might be, it may be cheaper in the long run than the failure to properly understand where we've come from. Don't Shoot the Messenger is a podcast brought to you by The Daily Maverick. This episode was produced by Haji Mohammed Dauji and written by Rebecca Davis. Editing by Tevya Turok Shapiro. Sound mix by Bernard Kotze. And additional support from Catherine Kotze. You can listen to Don't Shoot the Messenger on the Daily Mavericks website, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more, subscribe to the Daily Mavericks newsletters and follow us on Twitter and Instagram.
any questions or comments about the latest episode of Don't Shoot the Messenger, why not post them on the comments section of Apple Podcasts and we'll try and look into them for future episodes. You can also rate and review us. Our podcast is only possible because of your engagement and we want to know what you think.